Welcome to Coach House Talks. I'm really glad that we've just done communion and that we had a good session of worship before because when we do things like communion and when we do worship songs, they serve a purpose. And I hope you've seen the purpose that they serve. They remind us of who we are. They remind us of what God has done for us. They remind us, we look back, we worship songs, they focus our minds, don't they, on God's goodness for us. Now, I wish I could say that as a Christian, it was all plain sailing, that from the day that I got saved, <coughs> two years ago, um, no, I'm not. Forty, 40 years ago. I wish I, I wish I could look back 42 years and go, oh yeah, it all made sense to me right from day one. Bible completely and utterly just wrapped together. I understood it. I could pick it up and I could read it and I knew exactly what it was talking about. I could understand the flow of it. But I can't. You see, when I first became Christian, um, one of the difficulties I found was how do I understand this book that was supposed to give me all of the help and guidance that I would need as a, as a new Christian. And today, I've got to be honest, I still find myself lacking in understanding in what is a huge body of work written over many years by numerous authors. It's quite staggering as a book. It's quite overwhelming. I'm used to reading books that are quite thin, with a middle, beginning and end that follows through in one, one go and one line of thought. And yet, an understanding of God's plan and story with humanity is vital for us in seeing how God's love for us plays out in its various forms. Okay, so we kind of understand how God works for us on an individual basis. But sometimes picking this up and seeing how God kind of does some of the stuff he does can, can draw with us. Yeah, it, it kind of irritates us a little bit sometimes. Hang on, that's not the God I see and understand. But surprisingly, the flow of God's understanding of dealings with us is fairly straightforward if we take a step back and see the story as a whole. And that's the reason that we're doing what we're doing in terms of looking at the big picture. And we will finish the Old Testament before August. Okay, so there's my stake in the ground. By the end of July, we'll have finished the Old Testament, which gives us August to kind of have a breather. And then September into the New Testament, and we'll have finished the New Testament by the time we get to December. That's the plan. Okay, you heard it first here, and if it doesn't happen, you can stone me. <laughs> you see, the big picture is that, hey, surprise, surprise, God created us, God loves us, and we don't reciprocate. That's the big story. God loves us, he created us, he created us for a loving relationship with him, and we don't reciprocate that love. Man just keeps going, no, I'm going to do my own way. Humankind, as we've seen over and over again, turns its back on God, creating the backdrop to the story of God's desire to make us one with him again. 
So the rest of this book kind of is God's story about how he brings us back into that loving relationship which he first created for us, that he desires for us. See, the main thrust of God's plan is to reconnect with his image bearers. Now, who's his image bearers, you might say? Well, his image bearers are us. He created mankind in his image, or in their image, if you want to put it in the correct terms. So we are God's image bearers. And God's story is about reconnecting with his image bearers. He uses a covenant promise with Abraham and his descendants who become collectively known as the nation of Israel, from which Jesus is descended. Okay, Jesus is descended from Abraham and Jesus becomes the fulfillment of all God's promises, both to Abraham and to everyone else who's had covenant promises made to them. And guess what? We are still in the Bible story today because there's a bit of a gap here. It doesn't quite finish at the last page because we're still waiting for something to happen. We're still waiting for the return of Jesus. We are still waiting for the very, very final act of this book. So that means that we are part of the story today. We are living between the time of Jesus' ascension to heaven, which 50 days afterwards we have Pentecost, which is today. His ascension to heaven is saving death and resurrection and the time when he will return again to finally rescue, to finally put an end to evil, to finally move us into eternity with him without anything to distract us from him. No sin, no death, no decay. The Bible shows us how God acted in the past so that we can know how to act according to his purposes today, in the present. Okay, so this tells us how God acted. That's why the Bible is so important to us. That's why it's so important to not neglect this. Okay? Because it tells us everything we need to know about how God acted in the past. And we've already seen that as he acts in the past, he says, remember this. Do something about what I've just done. Remember it. And then he gives us these really quite... You know, at first when you're reading it, you think, what's this about? But then you see these numbers and you see these reoccurring events. And they are all done in order to bring his people into a remembrance of who God is. So when, the, when, the, when Jesus came and he spent 40 days in the desert, that was meant to remind them of 40 years in the wilderness. Because Jesus came to the Jews. Yeah? He came to the Jews. So he came to remind them from their history how God acted. That God let them wander for 40 years but then brought them into the promised land. 
and numbers keep reoccurring. You'll see events happening over and over again. And you think, what is the point of retelling these stories? They're just the same story with the same outcome. But it's because we're pretty dim. Steve's just alluded to it. 30 years, the disciples wandered around. Uh, three, three years, Jesus wandered around with the disciples. And you, when you read the accounts in the gospel, you think, why did they not get it from day one? Why did they not just simply understand that Jesus was the Messiah? Why did they, well, why did it take for Jesus to be resurrected in front of them for, the, for them to penny drop? But then I think of myself. And I think, you know, I, when I found Jesus, when Jesus found me, when I became back into relationship with God through Jesus and that understanding that I had to fall on his mercy and his love and accept that Jesus had died for me, I'd like to say that 42 years of not looking back and not going on questioning this or I'm not failing in this, or I'm not, I'd like to say that's true. But the truth is, there are days when I go, I'm not sure whether I can compute this. I'm not sure how this fits for me. I'm not sure whether I'm worthy. Because the devil sits behind us and around us, constantly chipping away at you. Does he not? Constantly trying to tell you the truth about yourself. Constantly around you, reminding you of your failings, reminding you that you are just not worthy. And certainly it reminds me, who do you think you are standing on front of a platform, getting messages together and helping to run a church? Constantly. Who are you? What about your failings? What about the things you've done? What about these things in the past? See, Satan is always, always, always trying to remind us of what we've done in the past as well. Which is why it's so important that we remember what God has done in the past and what he's doing in the present and what he's going to do in the future. Okay? And God uses the church today. He uses church to tell the world of God's love and provision and show the power of the living God we serve. Demonstrated at Pentecost and in all the years that have followed. Did you realize that Judaism was kind of almost put to death in 70 AD? But Christianity grew and grew. See, God's plans are never thwarted. Now, hopefully, we've already seen as a broad sweep, the story kind of goes like this. God creates humans in his image to have a fulfilled relationship with him. Man rebels and a gap is created between us. A flood, which lasted 40 days and 40 nights, creates a starting point again through which Noah and his family are saved and the earth has a chance to restart. Abraham is called to inherit the promised land and a covenant is made so that his descendants will bless the whole earth and yet we still rebel 
and reject, which ends up with us staying or with the Israelites becoming enslaved in Egypt. Later, another covenant is made with Moses to rescue Abraham's descendants and to bring about a unique relationship with them, allowing for worship and a place where God can govern. So you remember in Exodus, God makes all of this planning so he can come back down and dwell with his people. All right, it's limited, but he's coming back to dwell with his people. So he comes through the law, he gives a place in which his people can be governed, and then via the tabernacle and the ark, we have this place where God can convene with his people. But it's limited, and we need to understand that. And then eventually in the promised land, judges rule over Israel, guard the nation's borders, but they fail to resolve the decaying morality of God's people. So they move to a monarchy and the establishment of kings over God's people. Now, having a king is a good thing and a bad thing, okay? And we need to understand this as well. It rejects God's kingship over them, which is a very bad thing, okay? We want to be like the other nations, is the cry. Give us a king. That's a bad thing. Because it's rejecting, as Samuel is told, it's not you they're rejecting, but me. But it establishes a way for a greater king to come, which is a very good thing. Because Jesus is that promised king, and he is the best news that you and I could ever, ever receive. Jesus coming as a king is very good thing. Now the problem I had when I first came to faith was dealing with the enormity of this book. Imagine coming to this at 17 and being thrust into your hands and going that's everything you need to know about your relationship with God. Just read it. I read it like it was a novel. Hands up if that's kind of the first thing that you did when you got your Bible. Start at page one, like a book, like any other book, start at page one and start reading it through, and eventually you'll get to the finished conclusion and there'll be a nice juicy bit in the middle with a twist. Well, certainly that. But it's like a novel. But that's not how you read the Bible. It's like taking, I'm trying to think of a way of trying to get this across, so, a pack of cards. It's like taking a pack of cards with a crumbly cover and laying them all down, face down. You can't see it up here, but imagine that I'm doing so on and so forth. We'll keep going. I won't lay them all down because that would be crazy because that would go right over there. And then looking at this line of cards, 52 of them face down, thinking, how am I supposed to make any sense of this? So we do what we normally do. Hands up if you've done this. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Let's read a bit of this today and see what God says to me. Have we done that? 
Does it work? Well, yes, it does. Okay, so, so the, there's a sting in the tail here because sometimes what you read and what the Holy Spirit directs you to is what you need. Okay? But in terms of understanding the whole flow of things, that's not really going to help us. Just dipping in and out, not knowing where things fit, does not help us. And when I looked at the Bible, I looked at it and thought, I am never, ever, I'm supposed to learn this. How am I going to learn it? I can't even learn a ladybird book, which is about eight pages long. Okay? So how on earth do I learn this? It seemed unmanageable. Unintelligible. However, let's see if this has worked. If we take, oh look, the hearts. <laughs> this is on the fly, so if this doesn't work, don't worry. Have I done? I haven't done enough out. It's on the bottom. It's all right. Yeah, there we go. If we take just the hearts, okay, that's much more manageable, isn't it? And what I want to show you today, and what I want us to realise, is how much the Bible stacks up, rather than it being a big, long, exhaustible line. So if we take just the hearts as being God's love story to you and me, that is the entire span of God's story. Now, strangely enough, that is the entirety of God's flow and love story to Israel. That. Just the historical books. So think of the hearts as being the love story to Israel from Genesis through to Esther. The history. And everything that is in that is all we need to know about history. Because everything else everything else in the Old Testament this bit stacks on top of what you just read. Okay, so it's not a novel from start to finish. If you want to know more detail about the story and what's going on, it's contained in this bit. Okay? So, if we think of the hearts as being God's story, and the spades, the suit of spades, as being, well, the bit we have to dig a bit, a spade, to dig a bit. We have to dig for a bit more information. But that information only gives us more detail on what we already know. Okay? So things like, well, we find out that people start writing love songs to God. And they start producing wisdom that they've accrued. But things that we have to dig a little bit. But it stacks on top of God's love story. And then, when we're digging, we find and uncover quite a few diamonds. Quite a few nuggets. Things that are good for us to know. 
So we add those on top of God's love story. Wisdom, joy, songs of praise, songs of worship, all contained in the next section of the Old Testament. Which leaves a club. Some details of that club. But it reminds me that we belong to a new club. We belong to church. We belong to something that God has taken all of this aiming for this. Aiming for you and me. And making a new club. I know club sounds wrong, but it it fits with the card. Making a new venture, church, that we can all belong to. Not just the Jews anymore, but the Gentiles. And a church where there is no division now between Jew and Gentile, man and woman, slave and free. We all perfectly belong into God's story. Now instead of this now being a whole thing stretching across the floor, I now have it stacked up in my hand in manageable chunks. I know where they fit and I know that just a small section of that is God's story to Israel. I know that there's lots of things that Israel has found out and has presented along the way which stacks up on top of it. And then I also know that there's this beautiful end bit where God starts to work with us as Gentiles and includes us in. I hope that makes sense to you. So Genesis to Nehemiah or Esther form the historical framework for all of the wisdom writings and the writings of the prophets which come after it to fit into. Not only does it give the context for what's going on, but it also compresses time. One of the things that I had difficulty with when I looked at this book thinking, how on earth has this book to come together over such a long time period, bearing in mind that I thought page one was page one and page 58,000 was the last page. How does that kind of, it, it, all it does is it gives this massive big time scale. And one of the things that was really helpful to me was to realise that actually when I started just looking at the history, that there was nice chunks of 2,000 years. Oh, and we're 2,000 nearly years since Jesus' death and ascension. So, hmm. But there's 2,000 years between a flood and David, and there's, you know, there's nice breaks in the Bible that are about 2,000 years. So it helped me compress time. And it helped me to realise that if that's a few thousand years rather than hundreds and thousands of years of history that's written down, then actually the people who were writing it and making the accounts given to us was much more accurate and recordable and readable than I first imagined. So the time gives you lots of error. But compressing time means that actually the accuracy is kept. We can help make sense of things. Now, Daniel gave us a good clue last week about how to tackle some of the stuff that's coming up. He quoted two of David's psalms in his presentation to us on 1 and 2 Samuel. 
Okay? Why is that important? Well, it tells us about King Saul and it tells us about King David because I don't recall Saul writing any Psalms. Anyone here recall Saul writing any Psalms? But David wrote a lot of Psalms. So the things that we start to see is that David had a heart after God's own heart. He was the man of God's choosing. His relationship with God was real. We're told that he had a heart after God's own. In other words, even though David had plenty of human failure, and I'm sure we can all recount what those failures were, and bad practices, his heart was aligned to God. He was chosen, and he knew it. And he never faltered from it. So, why am I telling you this? Well, it's good practice to try and read the Psalms at the relevant point in the historical record that we've got given to us in the first section. Now, that's much easier when we've got the information. Now, hopefully, a good Bible will have a reference in the Psalm heading. For example, Psalm 3 in my Bible tells me that it was written by David when he fled from his son, Absalom. So I've now got a historical pinpoint for reading that psalm. And it places it at 2 Samuel chapter 15, which is when King David runs away from his son. Now, not all the psalms have this information, but when it has, have a look at the relevant passage so that you can root it in its historical context. Because suddenly they take on the meaning that the person who wrote it was saying. So, Psalm 3. Let's read it. O Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are against me. So many are saying God will never rescue him. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who holds my head high. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept, and yet I woke up in safety, for the Lord was watching over me. I am not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. Arise, O Lord, rescue me. Rescue me, my God. Slap all of my enemies in the face. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. Victory comes from you, O Lord. May you bless your people. Now, the subscript to that psalm tells me that that comes from David running away and being chased by all of the enemies that came from his son, Absalom, which is rooted in 2 Samuel chapter 15, which says this, 13 and 14. A messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem to tell David, all Israel has joined Absalom in a conspiracy against you. Then we must flee at once or it will be too late, David urged his men. Hurry, if we get out of the city before Absalom arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from disaster. And then a little bit later, as they find safety, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, starting halfway through verse 25, David says, If the Lord sees fit, he will bring me back to see the ark and the tabernacle again. But if he is through with me, let him do what seems best to him. And in that 
recounting of that story, David writes Psalm number three. But it makes more sense when we know the story. We see that David is fleeing for his life. We see that he is crying out to God for safety and that God does rescue him. And so he gives him praise. David understood that even in the face of rebellion and threats to his life from his own family, God would see him through. The Psalms he writes are expressions of his gratitude to God and also a note on his own feeble understandings and failings. See, we often fall back on our own emotions and understandings. But we must remember that God spans and commands all. He will rescue those who cry out to him. Now, a secondary point to remember here is that the Psalms and also Proverbs are collections and therefore not strictly correlated in time order. It's best to view them as they were first used as tools to focus attention as hymns and prayers. They were cries out from the heart. They are hymns and prayers and they were collated and collected together in order for the Israelites to sing in the temple, to sing about God's goodness, to sing about how God looked after them. So the various sanctuaries in which the Israelites worshipped God, they would use them. They were the redemption hymnal, the mission praise, if you like, and the modern worship song of the day. Now, if we view them in that way, then we may also see the relevance of some hymns and worship songs that we use today. Okay, I was lost in some of that songs this morning because they reminded me of where I was and where I've come from, where God has brought me. They're often written out of hardship and pain, but ultimately they are written to glorify God and tell the story of his guidance and provision. We can all think of It Is Well With My Soul, written by Horatio Spafford after tragically losing his family at sea. But what about a modern song like Raise a Hallelujah? And a hallelujah. That's one of them weird ones. Which was written as a call to faith and belief that God could heal a little boy from serious blood, blood condition. You see, whatever our liking or preference, it's the focus on God's sovereignty and his power in given circumstances that bring meaning to the songs of any age. So as we stand on the cusp of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, we will begin to see the interaction that God has with the monarchy as Israel declines into chaos and war and how God uses the role of prophets to remind the kings of their duties towards God and make his will known. But we should be aware that there's lots of stacking going on. Many of the books of the prophets will have been speaking into the generation of the kings we're about to read about. And they are recorded in this historical section. David has the success of uniting God's people into one nation. But by the end of two kings, we have a nation divided in two and ready for exile because of unfaithfulness. One and two chronicles then look back at this united kingdom and remind Israel of its heritage and spiritual foundation. Now somebody reminded me of this yesterday. I sat in the caravan a couple of days ago and I, was I had the joy of explaining to two people who do not believe how the Bible's constructed, <laughs> which is great. And they said, I've never known that before. And then one of them said, oh, yeah, um, 
chronicles. That's kind of somebody chronicling, looking back at something that's happened. And I went, oh yeah, daft me. That's what chronicles means. So chronicles is a selective memoir written about looking back to reminders. And I think that's something that we do today to encourage our hearts when we find ourselves in dark places. We find places we can go back to and remind ourselves of where God has brought us from. So there's one thing that remains constant. God's love for his creation, even when we turn our back completely. And this is shown to us by the work of the prophets whose work in offering God's direction and guidance to the kings starts to take centre stage. So when people select a king, God has to find a way of still speaking to them. So he speaks through the kings by prophets. Elijah and Elisha are two whose stories are contained within one and two kings to remind us that God has not abandoned even though the people have said we don't want your kingship. Israel's history in the Old Testament is bleak, but through it all, God remains constant, both in his love for his covenant people, but also in his consistent use of man's failure to bring about his will and purposes. If I look around, then I'm pretty sure it's still the same today. We have a bleak outlook on life. We have a bleak life sometimes. But God shines his light in it. And God brings about purpose. See, God's plan to rescue in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Today, we reference back to Jesus and look forward to the culmination of all God's promises in eternity when Jesus returns back to us. So the takeouts. The Bible shows us how God acted in the past so we can know how to act according to his purposes in the present. And everything points to Jesus as rescuer and redeemer, king of kings and promised Messiah. That's what we've got coming up. But it all points to Jesus. We've celebrated Jesus today. We've celebrated his death and resurrection. But that was a promise that actually began right at the beginning of this book. And we're living in the living part of it now, waiting for the culmination of God's promises to us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.coachhousechurch.org.